Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. Hello everybody, really quick announcement to make. So excited we have finally released our OITE slash board review series notes. Our companion book is now available on Amazon for less than the price of a number one at Cane's, which is, uh, for those of you that have been in Louisiana, it's a fast food, a fast food place. Um, please go and check it out. It has all of the notes from trauma to sports to basic science, um, spine, foot and ankle. It has some pictures that we drew as well. It also has timestamps to some of the times in the podcast that we talk about those topics so please go and check that out the link is in the description this episode is sponsored by the american academy of orthopedic surgeons regardless of your residency program year the resident orthopedic core knowledge platform developed by the american academy of orthopedic surgeons is right for you free to residents rock is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics and residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Otho podcast. You are tuned into our OITE slash board review series featuring myself, Dr. Cole, and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. You are on foot and ankle, and this is our third foot and ankle review episode. It's your first time listening. Welcome. If this is your, if you are a returning listener, welcome back. And without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. I'm not going to do a super long intro today, but just wait, there'll be some more. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. And so now that we've kind of moved past the uh, hind foot, let's move into uh, kind of probably one of the most common things you're going to see in foot and ankle and one of the most commonly tested things, which is hallux valgus. What oh, yes. is hallux, hallux valgus? Oh, yes. Bunions, as, 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 uh, as many people know them. So hallux valgus, that's when you have lateral deviation of the proximal phalanx. And this can also be associated with medial deviation of the first metatarsal. So a lot of patients will come in and come in the clinic and say, like, Doc, I just had this big bump on my foot. You know, I think I think this is a bunion. And again, so what it is is lateral deviation of the proximal phalanx. And you can also have associated medial deviation of the first metatarsal. And this is going to be a little bit more common in women. And this is going to be, you know, a lot of these patients wear these narrow toe box shoes. So it's going to be related to narrow toe box shoe wear. And you know, they always ask about hallux valgus. We might as well talk about it for a little bit. But what is the pathoanatomy behind hallux valgus? So it's kind of a, um, I'm not entirely sure uh, if it's a chicken before the egg type of thing, but pretty much you, you start to get valgus deviation of the first toe. Um, you get metatarsal varus. Um, then the sesamoid complex, uh, because you get that kind of deviation of the uh, first toe going into valgus, the first uh, tar or metatarsal going into varus, that sesamoid complex begins to pull lateral uh, to the uh, first metatarsal head. 
Then you get medial metatarsal phalangeal capsule attenuation or tightening because that, or I mean, uh, attenuation or loosening because that medial side is kind of opening up and, and now on stretch for a long period of time. The uh, pull of the adductor uh, accentuates the deformity and the uh, EHL tends to pull the toe even more lateral. Then uh, you also get some uh, pronation of the uh, first toe. And when you start to get the pronation of the first toe and the lateral deviation of the sesamoids, you're putting a lot more pressure on the other metatarsal phalangeal joints and the other metatarsal heads. And that's when you get the transfer metatarsalgia. So they may not have a lot of pain necessarily in that first MTP, but because they're putting a lot more of their body weight and um, movement through the second and third metatarsals, you get that transfer metatarsalgia. And so uh, what are some of the common types of adult hallux valgus? Yeah, so, you know, you can have congruent, you can have incongruent, and then you can also have degenerative hallux valgus. So, you know, a congruent joint is, if you look at it, there's no there's no like lateral subluxation. You know, the joint is actual congruent if you look at the articular surfaces. And then an incongruent joint is you may actually have some lateral subluxation of the proximal phalanx on the metatarsal head. You know, so that's where you're looking at. You have a an incongruent joint. And then degenerative is, you know, due to some arthritis of some of some sort of some degeneration of that of those articulations. And the end goal of treating hallux valgus is to have a congruent first metatarsal phalangeal joint at the end of the procedure. So sometimes they talk about the DMMA, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But again, you want a congruent first metatarsal phalangeal joint at the end of the procedure. So you can have congruent, incongruent, degenerative. That's why it's important to look at the uh, the MTP joint and the articular surface to see if they line up or if they don't. And what are some things, and I guess this is pretty pretty high yield um, that it may be a little harder to describe over x-ray. I mean, over podcast, but we'll try. Um, but what are some of the things you should note for when you get weight-bearing x-rays when you're evaluating these patients for hallux valgus? Yeah, a lot of times in questions, you'll be given these angles. They'll, they'll either tell you they're normal or they'll give you a value and you just have to know what is normal and what is abnormal. The most common ones are the intermetatarsal angle or the IMA. And that's looking at the angle between the first and second metatarsal. And normal is less than or equal to nine. So they, they should essentially be in line with each other. But once you start to get that uh, first metatarsal deviation medially or also known as a varus deviation, you're going to have a higher intermetatarsal angle uh, greater than uh, 10. Um, and they'll, they'll tell you that in the question, like the IMA is 13. Or right. uh, another one is the hallux valgus angle. And the hallux valgus angle is the angle between the uh, shaft of the uh, first metatarsal and the shaft of the proximal phalanx of the great toe. And that should be less than or equal to 15. So it is normal to have a little bit of, uh, kind of a valgus angulation at the, 
uh, MTP joint, but anything greater than 16 uh, is going to be an abnormal um, uh, angle. The uh, DMMA or DMAA, uh, which is the distal metatarsal articular angle, is uh, supposed to be uh, less than or equal to 15. And that is basically looking at the uh, you're looking at the um, how the articular angle of the uh, or the articular surface angle of the distal aspect of the first metatarsal is compared to normal. And then you have the uh, proximal phalangeal articular angle, which is kind of the same angle, but on the proximal phalanx of the great toe, not on the metatarsal. And that should be less than or equal to 10. But so basically what this is saying is that almost everything should essentially be in line from the first metatarsal into the proximal phalanx with that great toe. And any deviation from that is going to most likely be considered uh, hallux valgus. And treatment for these, we're going to get into the different surgical options you have, but you're going to use these angles to kind of tailor a surgical plan for these patients, depending on what's normal and what's abnormal. And so um, what are some of the non-op treatments though for hallux valgus? Yeah. So, you know, these patients that come to your office and, and you know, they have a bunion and they're like, doc, I don't want surgery. They're just a really poor surgical candidate. You can, you know, obviously one is going to be modification of the shoe wear. Um, so you can have them wear shoes that have a wider toe box. So again, in that in that distal part of the shoe area that the, the shoe is made so it's a little bit wider to accommodate people with this um some people would say you can wear sandals um you can also have wear or use metatarsal pads so to pad the the side of the metatarsal so it doesn't rub up against the shoe and then also some different arthroses that you can that you can wear and those are some of the non-op treatments for hallux valgus now there are a million and one <laughs> offer treatment options for patients that have these bunions but i guess in general you know to just get the the high points what are some different operative treatment options for patients with i guess differing degrees of hallux valgus you know it'll depend on some of the severity and some of those angles that you were talking about a little bit earlier yeah, unfortunately, this will be tested on. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> and the I, I guess the the good part of it is they will they can't make it too complicated. Like you can't write out a a, a complicated clinical scenario and test on a complicate complicated um, surgical plan just because it it just gets too it gets to be too much. So the, the downside is you have to know this stuff. The upside is that the surgical plans, they're going to typically just want you to think about one or two things you're going to do for this patient um, in terms of surgery. Like they're not going to have you do three different osteotomies along with uh, hind foot something or plan for a supramalleolar osteotomy down the road. Like they're not going to make it too complex. So to start off the soft tissues, there's a soft tissue release. So you're going to release the lateral structures of the MTP joint, and you're going to re recess or uh, resect part of that medial 
distal metatarsal eminence. And uh, again, this is rarely done in isolation, but when you have a hallux valgus angle uh, of less than 35, but still greater than the normal of 15, when you release these soft tissue structures, that's going to allow that first toe to become more in line with the uh, metatarsal itself. And what you don't want to do is excise the fibular sesamoid because excision of the fibular sesamoid increases the risk for hallux varus, which right. if you overcorrect these patients, that's what they're going to do is they're, they're going to kind of go past the normal and then go into hallux varus. And by releasing that fibular sesamoid, that, that's kind of the last check rein, uh, keeping that toe in a neutral position or even slightly valgus position. Um, then you have an Aiken osteotomy and these named osteotomies always got so confusing for me, like yes. a Chevron or an Aiken <laughs> yes, or whatever. And so it, I get it. It's, it sucks. It's something that we, that you have to know, but an Aiken osteotomy works on the proximal phalanx and it's a closing wedge osteotomy. Again, rarely done in isolation because the hallux valgus is most likely not just due to a deformity at the proximal phalanx itself. It has to do with the entire joint, the metatarsal and the proximal phalanx. But when you do an Aiken osteotomy, you're basically, you're going to do a closing wedge osteotomy of the proximal phalanx to make it more in line with the, uh, with the rest of the foot. And that's done when you have a proximal phalangeal articular angle uh, greater than 10 degrees. Um, a distal metatarsal osteotomy, <clears throat> which again, there's a bunch of named ones, but essentially um, you can do a distal osteotomy when you have a normal uh, intermetatarsal angle, but a larger hallux valgus angle. And uh, what these distal metatarsal osteotomies do is basically you say the foot is mostly in alignment, but by correcting it right at the level of the joint through the metatarsal, I can kind of correct them enough to get them more in line and have the hallux valgus angle be within the normal range. If the DMAA or the distal metatarsal articular angle is greater than 15 degrees, you can also consider a, uh, a closing wedge osteotomy uh, to help kind of improve that distal metatarsal articular angle if it's not a, a completely congruent joint. The most common, I think, tested ones are going to be these proximal metatarsal and the lapidus uh, fusions. Um, the proximal metatarsal osteotomy is the easiest one to test on because you're, they're going to give you an intermetatarsal angle of like 16 degrees. And you're going to be like, okay, that's outside of normal. It's, they're going to show you an x-ray where it's clearly a deviation from normal. And by fixing them proximally, you can essentially realign the entire foot by a single proximal fusion and maybe a distal soft tissue release if necessary. Uh, and then a lapidus fusion is 
a fusion of the metatarsal and cuneiform. And the key point to this, you have to look for this in every single hallux valgus question, is they will tell you if there is pain or hypermobility at the first ray. Yeah. And if they say the patient demonstrates hypermobility of the first ray or point tenderness at the metatarsal cuneiform joint, then that makes your life easy because a lapidus fusion is going to be the answer and you're kind of done with the question at that point. And then if all else fails, like let's say uh, a patient has tried or has uh, undergone a hallux valgus surgery before, or now they're transitioning into hallux varus and they have pain at the MTP, you can always do an MTP fusion and um, we'll get to that kind of down the road into what, what the optimal fusion uh, position is and all of that. But an MTP fusion is useful if you have MTP arthritis or the kind of like a rheumatoid picture. So that's a lot. Um, again, go through OrthoBullet or go through Miller's or whatever your re uh, review source is and um, just understand that Proximal osteotomies are done for high intermetatarsal angles and distal osteotomies are done for uh, normal intermetatarsal angles, but high hallux valgus angles. That's the, that's kind of the easiest way to think about this. Um, and uh, what's the most common cause of then kind of flipping over to the other side of uh, hallux varus? Yeah, so it's going to be Hallux valgus repair, <laughs> simple enough. Um, and one of the, I just want to touch on one of those things. So one of the things for that lapis fusion, how they'll show the first ray hypermobility. If they don't give it to you in the question stem, sometimes they'll show you a lateral of the foot and you'll see gapping on the plantar aspect of the, like the first tarsal metatarsal joint. And that was supposed to be your kill, your cue to realize that they have uh, first ray hypermobility and to choose a lapidus fusion in that case, again, where you're fusing the metatarsal to the cuneiform. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? Then you need to know about ROC. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, ROC covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to ROC content is free to residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. And, um, and so we talked a little bit about hallux varus, which again, the most common cause is hallux valgus repair. Uh, what is hallux rigidus since we're kind of on the, all these first ray issues? Yeah. So that's going to be arthritis at the first MTP joint, and it can be due to repeated trauma as in my case, because that's what I have and it sucks. Mm -hmm. Um, metabolic conditions and inflammatory arthritis as well. So, um, and it's one of those things we'll, we'll get into, like you said before, with the ankle arthritis and subtalar arthritis, what are the most common physical exam findings? And it seems like hallux rigidus was the only joint in the body where they adequately 
told you what's going on in the joint <laughs> with the arthritic condition. So what is the important thing to note on the physical exam in a patient with hallux rigidus? Yeah, so you're going to be looking at the range of motion of the first metatarsal phalangeal joint. So if they have pain with range of motion at the extremes only, so extreme plantar and extreme dorsiflexion, and you know they have limited arthritis, and you know that's more associated with limited arthritis. And you may see some dorsal osteophytes as well when you look at the X-ray. Sometimes you can actually feel the dorsal osteophytes through the skin. But again, pain at extremes of range of motion is likely going to be associated with limited arthritis versus if you have pain at the mid range of motion, that's going to be associated with more advanced arthritis, which again, makes sense. If you have bad arthritis, it's going to hurt in more, <laughs> in more degrees of motion versus if yeah. it's limited. Um, and, and what are some of the non-op treatments for Halix Riches? I don't know if you're undergoing any of these treatments, but again, what are some of the non-op treatments for this? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely doing the NSAIDs um, <laughs> on an almost daily basis. Um, steroid injections or uh, uh, Medrol dose packs for kind of acute flare-ups, activity modifications. Um, and like you said, with these paint, with this kind of rigid first toe, um, patients may also tell you like... Um, it hurts to go on their uh, tiptoes or it, uh, it hurts. Like, like when I get down to do like a pushup uh, and my toes have to be extended in order to get into that position with my feet, I have to find shoes that are rigid enough that I can just go on the very tip of my toes. Like I can't bend my toe back. Right. And so they'll say stuff like that, or it, or it hurts to do lunges on, the on that side because mm. when, you have to, when you have to go down into a lunge and you extend your toes to allow that position like that sort of stuff is what they the younger patients because i'm still young um <laughs> yes uh still uh will complain about um but then um and you mentioned the uh uh or I, i'm going to uh talk about this stuff but uh like the extra depth shoes or the carbon fiber foot plates with Morton extensions. And they may show you somebody with uh, Halix rigidus, like an X-ray, and then they'll show you pictures of different um, orthotics that you can give. They may just give like a picture of an off the shelf orthotic, a picture of a UCBL orthotic, an Arizona brace, or uh, this Morton's extension. And basically you're looking for a uh, orthotic that then has an extension where the great toe will be. And these are either carbon fiber or steel. And what that does is it, it just, it doesn't allow for uh, extension or flexion at the first MTP joint. So it's like a, it's like a rigid plate for your toe to be on while the rest of the toes are, are flexible. There's no rigid flat plate underneath them. Um, and then the extra depth shoes are really just needed because of those dorsal osteophytes. They can rub on the top of shoes and um, people can develop like calluses or ulcers in that area if their shoes are too tight. So extra depth shoes may be um, prescribed or, or kind of you tell the patients to go and get those. Um, but what are some of the uh, surgical treatment options with Halix rigidus. 
Yeah. So, you know, if you have mild Halix prejudice and you've undergone, again, all these non-op stuff, you've tried the depth shoes or the, you know, foot plate with the Morris extension, you're still having pain, discomfort. One thing you can do for mild arthritis is going to be, or mild hallux rigidus, I'm sorry, will be kind of this joint debridement with a dorsal chelectomy. And what the dorsal chelectomy is, is actually just kind of shaving the metacarpal head or shaving that, that prominence or that osteophyte. Um, sometimes, you know, if you look there and there's some damage to the metatarsal head cartilage, you can do a microfracture, which is just drilling just some small, small holes. Um, and then sometimes, you know, these patients may be at a uh, good benefit from an osteotomy or a dorsiflexion osteotomy, sometimes called a Moberg osteotomy of the proximal phalanx, and that can help improve range of motion. So again, you know, mild hallux rigidus, you're looking at least at a dorsal colectomy, um, possible microfracture, and a possible dorsiflexion osteotomy, which is a Moberg osteotomy, to help improve the range of motion. And in patients that have moderate or severe hallux rigidus, there are a lot of different options. Um, one is an interposition arthroplasty. So you put some type of substitute in the joint. It could be your extensor hallucis brevis or again, some other substitute. You can also put a synthetic implant in there. I know a lot of people are starting to do this. Um, and what that is, is, is like a poly, polyvinyl alcohol implant. Um, that's placed in that joint. And this can also be used in conjunction with a dorsal chelectomy for these patients that have, you know, these moderate to severe arthritis. And y'all can also always do an arthrodesis. You can fuse it. So first MTP fusion, uh, this can be done with a screw and a dorsal plate. And one of the things to note of when you're fusing these, you want to fuse these at around 15 degrees of dorsiflexion and around 15 degrees of valgus. So we touched a little bit earlier about our position of the ankle when we're doing a tibio-tailor fusion, and we wanted that to be in, in neutral to maybe limited dorsiflexion and uh, a little bit of valgus. But now when we're talking about the first MTP joint and we're fusing that, we want to fuse these in around 15 degrees of dorsiflexion and around 15 degrees of valgus. Hello, everybody, and thank you for listening to yet another episode of the Nail the Dorotho podcast. We talked a little bit about some more foot stuff. We talked a little bit about Halix Valgus, Halix Rigidus, and we will continue to talk some more foot and ankle things. So if you're enjoying this, please go and leave us a five-star rating. It takes literally 10 seconds. It would help us out a bunch. And if you could tell two other people, if you're a resident listening to this, you have co-residents. Help them out. Don't be the one that knows everything and doesn't help them out. Help them out and put this in the group chat and send it to some of your colleagues and hopefully this can help them and help your entire program do better on your OIT scores as well as pass your board exams, which is the overall goal of this entire thing. So without further ado, I will see you all next week.